Now you are at Founders FAQ. Answers to all the possible questions of a founder. We like to invest in things that are bringing a better application layer experience for engineers and consumers. And I, I really believe that the blockchain technology is still in its infancy. I think we're dealing with something kind of akin to personal computers in the 80s, where, yeah, you can use it, but you got to kind of be really educated on technology and really sophisticated to use it. We'll know blockchain has come of age when we no longer really talk about blockchain, when it just becomes part of the tech stack used by commercially viable applications that the majority of the population is using. And they won't know they're using blockchain because it won't matter. What will matter is the service is delivered in a highly efficient and secure way, leveraging the blockchain technology. Welcome to Founders FAQ. Today, my guest is Mark Peter Davis. Mark is a venture capitalist, serial entrepreneur, author, and community organizer. He is the founder of Interplay Ventures, an investment and incubation firm based in New York City. He is also the author of the Fundraising Rules, a handbook designed to help entrepreneurs raise capital. And lastly, he has a neat podcast dedicated to innovation, truth, and education. It's called Innovation with Mark Peter Davis. Hi, Mark. Thanks for coming to Founders FAQ. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, basically, my first question is, could you tell me a little bit a brief about Interplay and what are the current updates on your end? Yeah, so Interplay is an interesting firm in my perspective. We are a mission-driven, for-profit startup ecosystem. And the mission centers around a belief that entrepreneurs are the primary driver of social change in our world, typically having more impact than a lot of the other entities that are generally associated with social change. And so it's my hope and ambition to build a firm that long outlives me, that helps thousands of entrepreneurs a year build and drive the change that they care about. So I kind of think of it as a platform of picks and shovels to help founders do what they need to do. We've got a number of dimensions to it at this point. We have obviously the capital side. We have an early stage venture fund. We have a blockchain fund. We also have a services platform. We had started at our peak about seven companies that provide a core operating services to entrepreneurs. These are things like commercial and health insurance, marketing, leadership training, accounting tax CFOs, software development design, business process outsourcing, and law. All of these companies are visible on our website, interplay.vc, if anyone needs any of those. And all of those companies really focus on providing those services and specialize in doing those for startups. At our peak, we were servicing about 10% of all venture-backed companies in the United States through those service platforms, those companies. We also have a, a studio where we incubate existing companies, typically at or around the seed stage, and we get really involved and hands-on and help those companies. We have a foundry where we aim to launch five to 10 of our own companies a year. We have a multifamily office that works with partners and other people from the innovation market that have had liquidity to help make sure their money is managed well once they've generated a bunch of wealth, but also to make sure the money gets into the hands of the next generation of entrepreneurs. So it continues to not just create wealth for folks, but to drive social impact. And then we do a bunch of things that don't generate any revenue whatsoever. As you know, you just mentioned you're also a listener. I, I do a podcast called Innovation with Mark Peter Davis. I, do, uh, I wrote a book on fundraising, a 101 handbook for entrepreneurs on how to raise capital. 
we host 30, 40, 50 events a year in New York, based for all different types of folks. Started the largest entrepreneurship community for Columbia, a large one for Duke, a large one for NYU. And those are all things that we just believe are important and constructive to kind of helping entrepreneurs in their journey or helping people find the innovation economy as a viable career path where at some universities or schools, you know, it may not be so accessible. It's not necessarily in the, you know, heralded by the career center or otherwise. So everything we do centers around helping entrepreneurs be successful over time, my life's work. And that, I don't know, it's probably a good place to stop. And, you know, I think you have a little sense of what we're doing. That's great. And I want to jump in a high topic. How do you see the current OpenAI's chat GPT comparison to 2008's mobile upheaval? Like, what will be your top recommendations for founders who are just thinking to start a new gen AI startup? And like the defensibility is like one of the core topics. What will the defensibility there? Do you think like incumbents now can better perform to handle the gaps compared to 2008's? Upheaval, like I just want to start with one of the hypes today. Yeah, no, I think I think what you alluded to is dead on. The key consideration for everyone who's entering into the AI space is to really develop deep understanding of the defensibility of the business you're building. If you look, if you compare back to the mobile revolution started in 08, obviously the platform at first was Apple and then uh, Google opened. The all of the applications that were built on top of it had dependency on a gatekeeper, right? You have you have to get through the platform. So that's a big risk. That's probably going to be there in similar fashion with the AI platforms that are now being rolled out and all you know for all the application layers that are being built on those platforms. If you look back to mobile apps, some of those products became commoditized very quickly. There wasn't a lot of defensibility and others have been infinitely successful and have dominated a marketplace. I mean take Uber as a simple example that everyone's familiar with. They've got a really, really strong market position, even though their means of delivery is through these platforms that they don't control. I think the key thing to think about is the traditional strategic insights around what creates defensibility. It usually comes down to, in the short term, maybe a product advantage, but medium and long term advantages usually come down to cost advantages. So you're able to do something at a lower cost because of some, the way you've developed the service in one way or another, it comes down to some sort of capital requirement advantage. Some businesses are really capital intensive to start. You can't just start an Uber or a Lyft tomorrow with your pocket change. Building a network of all the drivers and all that's quite expensive. So the bigger that upfront capital requirement is to compete with you, the bigger the moat. And the third thing, which is the most powerful in my mind, is the network effect. The more everybody needs to be on the same platform to get increased value, the more powerful the sustainability of the company's position is going to be. I believe there were five auction companies way back in the day, five, six, and eBay is the only one we know. Because when there's a network effect, usually there's a winner take all. And I think most of the companies that carry the most value and the biggest premiums generally have this characteristic. So I would say the same is going to hold true for the AI revolution that's coming. I think we're in early days of it now. I think the businesses and models that are going to be most sustainable and most dominant are going to probably, at the very least, have some sort of capital intensity to launch the product, some real heavy technology, some operational complexity in the back end that's just expensive to set up. 
But I think the real winners long-term are going to be the ones that have a network effect baked in. And the key, you know you have a network effect if every incremental user creates value for every incremental, every other user already on the platform. If you're a seller on eBay, every other buyer that's on that platform makes it more valuable to you. So you don't want to go to a platform where there's no buyers. And the same parallel holds in the Uber paradigm. More drivers, you know, equals more people who, you know, it's easier to get a ride. And you also, drivers don't want to be wasting their time waiting to find someone to pick up. So they want a bunch of people. So everyone kind of needs to be in the same forum, the same app to create density, a network effect, and the greatest value for all. I get it. And you invest on battery as well. And last year was on crypto winter. Like, which verticals do you most focus on battery? And like, what are the main challenges in there for as a VC or as a founder? Yeah, I think there's important. It's important to distinguish between crypto and blockchain. I view blockchain as the underlying technology that enables crypto, which is an application of it. And I think we have entered. I mean, so I'll comment on both of those independently. We have entered a crypto winter. I don't think the crypto story has been fully written yet. People are writing it off. Uh, we've been through a number of crypto winters. Generally, they're the best time to be buying, not selling. But you know, if you want to make money in this world, you have to be a contrarian. Otherwise, you can't buy low and sell high because price is driven by the momentum of the herd. Uh, so I think we're going to see where that all goes. I'm still hopeful that there are real, real-world applications that will take hold and will have interesting socioeconomic effects in, uh, for the benefit of the broader society. But we primarily at Interplay are investing in blockchain. We're investing in the concept of a distributed, decentralized database technology that we think can have very relevant and important underpinnings in the tech stack to improve security and overall tech flow on the web. So where we focus within that is bringing blockchain. We like to invest in opportunities that are bringing decentralization to businesses and marketplaces where they're better decentralized. We like to invest in things that are bringing a better application layer experience for engineers and consumers. And I, I really believe that the blockchain technology is still in its infancy. I think we're dealing with something kind of akin to personal computers in the 80s, where, yeah, you can use it, but you got to kind of be really educated on technology and really sophisticated to use it. We'll know blockchain has come of age when we no longer really talk about blockchain, when it just becomes part of the tech stack used by commercially viable applications that the majority of the population is using. And they won't know they're using blockchain because it won't matter. What will matter is the service is delivered in a highly efficient, secure way, leveraging the blockchain technology. So there's a big distinction between the crypto and the blockchain side of the world. Um, I think they both have different stories. Where we invest primarily as a firm is on the blockchain, the future database technology. We're less investing in speculation around which currencies will make the most money or be the most widely adopted. I get it. And I want to come to some of the most wanted questions of founders. Basically, while founders are pitching to you, how do you evaluate them? Like, what do you look for? And what's your recommendation for founders before coming to meet you? This is a huge question. So the book I wrote, which I'm the worst book promoter on earth ever, frankly, don't care about it. When I started off in VC in 2006, 
I was an entrepreneur who felt like I was undercover in the venture job. And VC at that time was far more opaque than it is now. And I really didn't believe that was in the service of entrepreneurs for sure, but investors either, because there was really talented entrepreneurs that would come into a venture process who had good business ideas, and they'd kind of muddle or fumble through the language investors are looking for or the structured thinking they're looking for when the core tenants and the fundamentals of what they were doing might have been exceptional. And so I started blogging. And at that time, I was writing three posts a week. It was a labor of love. And my objective was to write everything I learned about how VC works online for free. And so I wrote it like a a book with very detailed chapters and subchapters. It was kind of like a handbook. You can navigate to chapter six, which is like what to do in the second meeting, flip on to page three, read three paragraphs, get the answer, close the book, let it collect dust again. And I built that out online and people started, they kept asking me for a book version. And I don't really use a lot of paper. I'm one of those. So it was very, it took me a long time before I kind of made the move to take the online version and publish it. So now that's published on Amazon. The book is called The Fundraising Rules. And it is a handbook, several hundred pages. I think this font's a little too small. My bad. Uh, it's probably three to five hundred, three to 400 pages worth of content where I lay out chronologically how to think about every single step in the fundraising process. I think it's quite a boring read if you're trying to read it end to end, but you'll sure come out knowing how the game works, what all the different terms are, in the venture term sheet, how to think about negotiating them. You'll know what needs to go into the different documents you're preparing, how to prepare those documents, um, how to navigate the meetings, what to do in each meeting. There's extreme depth. And so I, I recommend people read it. There's a detailed appendix table of contents up front where they kind of parachute into what's relevant for where they are in that stage. So that's the best answer. I mean, there's a hundred do's and don'ts that people see. I have the belief as a VC investor you can have it all. And that's a bit contrarian. I took a class on VC in business school and there was a case study we did. And we read about three anonymized companies. We didn't know what the companies were. You know, they were, they were pretty well anonymized. And one had this incredible team. One had an incredible technology, which I kind of think of as a barrier. And one had an incredible market. And we had to pick which company we were, we were going to invest in. Now, in reality, all three companies were real companies that IPO'd and were super successful. So you kind of couldn't go wrong. But what the exercise was trying to do was force you into figuring out if you're a person who invests in teams, technology slash barriers, or markets. And I struggled with that for the, my first years in venture. I kind of waffled between different things I wanted. And where have, I've come out over the years is that... There are companies that actually have all three and they're incredible and you can just invest in those. Now, it's more competitive to get into those deals because they're, they're wildly attractive. There's the risk profile may be mitigated in a bunch of ways that some other companies might be, might not be as much. What I look for is all of it. Uh, so we are looking for exceptional teams who are building into large markets, solving a real pain point, have real traction. We help facilitate to make sure those teams have great co-investors around the table. We try to stack the deck to make sure the companies are going to win. So it's a bit of a different perspective on, on how to do VC, not right or wrong. 
I know a lot of people who've been wildly successful being team investors or market investors, but I'm not. I'm the investor who wants to check every box to do the deal. I'm adding a link of Fundraise Grows on the description of the podcast so uh, the audience cool. can get it. And uh, another question is about founders. Like, I'm wondering your thoughts about the solo founders versus group of founders. And also, I'm seeing recently a lot of cases on Cosio models. So I'm just wondering your thoughts for Cosio's solo founders versus group of founders. Yeah. You know, there are VCs out there who are real religious about this question. And I don't feel like I have a good argument to say people are right or wrong. Um, there's stats people say about solo founders are have a lower success rate. That may be. Um, there's all those stats about co-founders having fights and that killing companies. And that may be. I look for specific traits within the team. I'm looking for grit, curiosity, and humility, which I think are related. So they, they're constantly learning. I don't know everything personally, not even close. I'm learning from everyone around me teams, entrepreneurs, investors, LPs. We're looking for organizational skills. We're looking for some trajectory to show that the team is fu highly functioning. And that's generally how we tend to assess founders. And we get involved with founders at all different stages. Remember, at the foundry, we're getting involved at the idea stage. Like We're literally hiring someone to start a company with us. You know, the incubator at seed stage, so it's an early team, maybe it's five people. 10 people. At the Series A, teams are much larger and much more developed. And then we're investing in Series B and C out of our opportunity fund. So we're kind of involved more or less with founders at every stage. And we haven't found one team construction to rule them all. But it is very important that there's strong, healthy relationships. There's high EQ. People have clear division of labor. And I think a lot of that just stems from humility organizational skills, and grit. Those are three core, core pillars that I think are the magic ingredients for success in business. I think those are more important than having gone to a certain school or having done something prior in your life. I think those are less significant tells than humility, organizational skills, and grit. I get it. And also, I'm wondering, how is your current portfolio distribution in terms of remote working versus on-site? And like, do you have any preference while investing to remote teams? You know, it's a great question. In 2006 to 2010-ish, my first kind of cycles in the business, it was a common standard amongst the venture community to be religious against any outsourcing of what were considered material functions. The idea of investing in a company that had a development team offshore or not co-located was almost outrageous. It was reckless, controversial. That has evolved materially. I believe it's important to have trust and diligence infrastructure in the core team, and that can be solved in different ways. But we build a lot of companies now and invest in a lot of companies that are in many ways distributed. In fact, we've helped enable distribu the distribution of those teams through the service companies we've built, right? We had a company we've sold off since that did software development based out of Argentina and Uruguay. And it was wildly successful as a resource for startups in early stages and beyond. 
Now, we, I think the key to having a distributed team is to make sure you manage accordingly. And there's a bunch of different tactics that you have to kind of turn the dial up or down on the spectrum, depending on how communication flows. If you have a fully, fully distributed team, literally no one is ever in the same office. There's a lot of best practices out there that CEOs will do. They'll open up management meetings on Zoom, but they'll invite broader team members to be there to create more visibility and transparency. There's more communication that has to be done overtly because there's less word of mouth happening through weekly and monthly updates. So there's a lot of dials that have to be churned. But there's other tactics when you're thinking about which divisions to take in the operation versus outside of the operation. There's a bunch of pros and cons, right? Let me do some pros and cons first. Like one of the things people debate heavily today is in-house marketing or use an agency. Well, in-house marketing develops expertise and know-how internally, but there's some challenges with that. Marketing, we use as one word, but the reality is it's a dozen disciplines that are all critically important for most companies once they get to scale. And when you hire an in-house team, you're typically not hiring 12 different people who are experts. You're hiring a couple of generalists, maybe one expert. Well, when you go with an agency, you get 10% of 12 different people's time. And all 12 of those people who you're time sharing with are experts. So arguably, you have a higher degree of expertise. Second factor to consider there is the marketing environment, the paradigm is changing all the time. You know, the rules of privacy on mobile changed drastically last year or so with Apple. That was devastating and has upended a whole swath of the marketing equation for paid ads, right? And so what works today may not work tomorrow, and you need a lot of agility and skill sets to evolve. And when you have a team that you've hired, well, hiring and firing cycles are pretty long. You can't really turn on a dime. With an agency, you can cut it off with your 30, 60, 90 days notice, try a couple agencies head to head, pick the best one, and be in business again. So there's real pros and cons. I think the key thing to think about if you're going to outsource as a manager is you really want to make sure you have someone on the core team who you have a strong trust relationship with who can check the work and can understand what's happening. If you're outsourcing development, you want someone on your founder team or someone you've hired in-house who can check the code, vet the development team, talk the talk, be involved in the sprints. Otherwise, you're not delegating, you're abdicating the work. You have no visibility into quality. And I think that same principle applies across all of the different disciplines, whether it's marketing, accounting, otherwise. You need to have someone on the team with a baseline knowledge to manage the outsource providers. Generally, I think outsourcing has a ton of advantages, and most people are doing it with a lot of their core teams now. But the key is you need to have uh, core capabilities and the, tr the trust to be able to make sure you're managing those functions well. And you're also looking for founders to start a startup. Like, could you give a bit detail on this? Because, yeah, founders, it's really a neat model for a lot of founders to start a startup. Yeah, if you're someone who's got a real job, and you've dreamt of being an entrepreneur your whole life. You want something more exciting, maybe more inspiring and more independent, but you don't have the right idea or the know-how, or you're an entrepreneur who's gone out and run into the wall and crashed and failed. That's great. Don't be ashamed by that. Be proud of it. But you don't have an idea you have confidence in or want to avoid making a bunch of mistakes over and over and over and learning the hard way. There is an easier path. And that is Interplace Foundry. 
And people can simply go to our website, interplay.vc, click around, and they can apply to be a CEO at Interplay. And we will, if they get through our vetting process, which unfortunately, as you'd imagine, is extremely rigorous, the CEOs will be paired with one of our ideas. If they like the idea, they will be set into motion with a business idea, funding, and operational support and advisement from our team, which includes uh, lots of veteran founders who have seen not everything, but a lot of things. And so the role of a founder, in, in my mind, it's largely de-risked. There's no zero risk, but largely de-risked in the sense that it should be a pretty well-vetted idea. And when the founder shows up, there's all these things that's always new to everybody, but there's a lot of lessons learned collectively in a kind of our brain trust on our team and our partnership. And so I, I think we can illuminate the path for a founder. I, I like to think that starting a company is like a marathon. I've said this before. You know, it's a very daunting exercise. When you say to someone, hey, I'm going to run a marathon, everyone's thinking, holy crap, that's 26 miles. That sounds terrible. Good for you. I think of it as 5,000 small steps, right? Starting a company isn't starting a company. It's sending an email. It's recruiting somebody. It's submitting some paperwork. And it's doing a 1,000 of these, 5,000 of these little things in the right sequence, very important emphasis on the word sequence, to create a viable standalone business that's a going concern. So short of it, I would say we are look actively looking for founders. It's something that's very important to us. If you're sitting in a day job and wishing you were an entrepreneur and want to give it a real go, you think you have what it takes. If you started a company before and you think you have what it takes, hop over to interplay.vc and submit online. Yep, that's great. And Lastly, what's next for Interplay? And is there any new vertical you will invest in uh, this year or any kind of new focus? We are going to be expanding the scope of the platform. We are actively focused very heavily on institutionalizing everything we have in place now. We're bringing on more and more robust capital partners. We've built out the team a lot. We're over 20 people now. So we're, we're doing a lot to advance the existing operation. I think the horizon for us will be a series of initiatives that will have really material social benefit. So we'll, we'll be thinking a little bit beyond just the dollars and cents. I think some of them will be wildly profitable, but we're picking spots where we think they solve real so social pain points. Uh, and we'll be trying to use our platform and our leverage to have a positive impact increasingly layer by layer. So that, that's where I see the horizon in the next decade or so. I get it. Mark, it's really nice to have you at Founders FAQ. So thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on. And if anyone listening wants to connect, you can find me at Twitter at MPD. You can find my podcast at interplay.vc. The book is on Amazon. And if there's anything we could be doing to help, you can pretty much see the whole menu of what we do at interplay.vc. By the way, you can order Founders FAQ from foundersfaq.com. It covers the answers to all the possible questions of a founder in a startup journey, revealing life-saving principles for the startup survival path, building A-plus teams, creating an evolving machine, setting up a neat culture, or interpreting the true path for the fundraising.